a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. We've got a brand new week ahead of us. We have many wonderful things to discuss. And some great sponsors to thank as well. Let me do that right off the bat. A shout out to our friends at HSLAmmo.com, also pure-light.com, and of course, MonticelloCollege.org. I just appreciate these sponsors. I've got links to the show notes or links to them in the show notes at the com, and would encourage you to uh, take a little click on them, find out more about them, send them a note of thanks, tell them, yeah, 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 I heard Brian talking about you. And uh, if you need their service, you need their, their particular product, I'd say go for it. All right. That said, how are you? Welcome to uh, the world of wrong think, challenging the official narratives. And boy, have we got some great ones to challenge today. I wanted to start out with something that came to my attention over the weekend. And I guess I'm, I'm jumping in with both feet because just by the name I'm about to drop on you is going to inv- it's going to evoke some interesting reactions in people. Maybe you're one of those people who have a very negative reaction. Maybe not. But uh, it appears Ammon Bundy is filing the paperwork to run for governor of Idaho. Now, this, of course, you know, brings uh, predictable, you know, hems and haws from people who are his critics. Well, if he hates government so much, why would he want to run for it? And I don't I don't think they're paying attention to, to what's been going on. This is a guy who has been under attack by government in various ways for quite some time. And I mean, most notably, going back to 2014, um, that's that's when you saw government uh, literally come after his family in a militarized, absolutely disproportionate show of force over an alleged debt. I mean, it's you, if you weren't at the trial, if you didn't hear some of the things that came out during the trial, no, they literally built a task force, a militarized task force, like they were going to go take down an Al-Qaeda cell because Ammon's dad fired the BLM for managing his grazing leases and said, never mind, we'll take care of it ourselves. Every dime I give you, you're just turning around and using to try to put me out of business, which, by the way, they did to at least 50 other ranchers in the area. The judge saw through it. The jury saw through it. Actually, multiple juries have seen through it. People still shake their heads. I don't understand why those Bundys ain't sitting in jail. That's because the truth came out and government was the aggressor. It was it was the state that was in the wrong. So if Ammon is running for governor, let's just follow this thread. Let's keep pulling on it and see where it leads. Is it likely he's doing so so that he can have the the reins of power and he can go around and victimize people like he's been victimized? I don't think so. And again, I say this as someone who has uh, has been personal friends with Ammon, who has associated with him, and um, no, the guy's not perfect. He wouldn't claim to be. But his goal is to stop, to put some friction against that government juggernaut that is not only been going after him and doing its best to ruin his life and his family's life, but also has taken aim at you and me 
and various other people who don't yet uh, perceive the threat that they are facing. But I have to say, I did get a chuckle out of uh, the, the spectacle of witnessing authentic panic. If you ever wondered what authentic panic looks like, wow. Just look no further than the reaction of certain leaders in the Idaho GOP to Ammon's uh, impending run for, for governor. I mean, it, it's you'll have to read the denouncement for yourself. I do have a link to a Newsweek article, and I mean, you know, the Idaho GOP. Just, oh, well, uh, we, we can't support this kind of craziness, and this this is just a, a bad name on politics. And, you know, and what they're saying, I'm just going to translate this for you. You don't have to agree with my translation, but what they're saying is, if this guy gets into power, we won't have the ability to exploit power the way that our, you know, political opponents have been exploiting it. That's what they see. They see a threat to their ability to use the state for their purposes, not to represent people, not to represent good government that is it's called into existence for the purpose of protecting and guaranteeing your natural rights. They see this as a potential threat to their ability to tell other people what to do and make it stick. And I'm sorry, that's evil. I don't care if it's Republican-flavored statism or Democratic-flavored statism or some unnamed form of statism. If it's all about forcing people to do what you know is best for them or what is politically expedient for you or what punishes those who would disagree with you, I'm sorry, you're wrong. That's, that's coming from a place of darkness, and it's coming from the source that has been the cause of every instance of massive misery and atrocity in human history. So I would encourage you, yeah, I don't care if Newsweek gets the clicks, click on the article and read the reaction of members of, the, of some of the members of Idaho's GOP to Ammon Bundy's uh, upcoming run for governor. Oh, they want to excommunicate him so badly from the political process. And, and you know, if I sound like a fanboy, sorry, I guess I'm going to sound like a fanboy. The reason they're so frightened is because he does represent a very significant threat to their ability to utilize power over other people. Now, again, if you think that, well, that's a good thing, though, we should have power over others. I'm sorry to say this, but you're part of the problem. And you should you should really recheck and rethink your premise of what exactly is the purpose of government. By the way, I loved Ammon's response. Uh, he sent out a, a text response through his uh, People's Rights Organization, and it was humorous. I mean, he at least looked at it with with uh, with a sense of humor. And says, "Look, guys, you're, I mean, they're trying to make a big deal out of why he's not even a registered Republican, and he's you know he can't even run for office. He's not legal to run for office in this state. Oh, they're very concerned that every jot and every tittle be observed, every I is dotted, every T is crossed. Guys, it's a matter of filling out a piece of paper. That's it." And Ammon very, I think, correctly noted, guys, I I didn't need your support and wasn't counting on your support in the first place. Now, he can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but um, again, knowing Ammon personally, knowing the the character of this guy, um, I think he'd probably be more alarmed if GOP leaders in the state of Idaho strongly agreed with him, rallied around him, if they considered him one of them, because he's clearly not one of them. 
He's someone who actually understands at a very personal level that very few people have ever understood. You know, people who haven't sat in jail for two years on trumped-up charges, only to have the government turn around and dismiss those charges with prejudice because it was clear that its case was falling apart like a soup sandwich, and it was clear that it was government actors who were in the wrong, who were trying to provoke violent confrontation, and they very nearly succeeded. I mean, I I understand. If you don't want to agree, that's fine. You may think, well, Brian, you're as bad as Ammon. And, you know, if you tell me that, I'm actually going to take it as a compliment. But then again, I do have this small advantage of actually knowing the guy personally. I was there at Bundy Ranch, was not there for the standoff, but I was there for something far more important that took place that morning at Bundy Ranch. And I can tell you whatever misgivings I have had over, you know, the the handling of uh, Bunkerville or even the uh, Malheur Wildlife uh, Refuge occupation. I really believe the guy's coming from a, from a pure place. And people who have taken the time to, to dig in and ascertain the facts can pretty clearly see this. But most importantly, people have got to understand what is the state? What is government for? And when we make the argument against you know, being embraced by that, that smothering grasp of political government. There's an awful lot of people, and I mean good people, who will argue against it. Hey, you don't want to do that. Well, that's just anarchy. That is just craziness, and everybody will be running around doing whatever they want. And So when we come back, the other side of the break, I'm going to share with you an article from Kent McManigal. And I think this is actually one of the better illustrations of why the state needs to be minimized in our lives. Now, look, for the record, like Ammon, I believe there is such a thing as good government, but it's very limited in its scope, and it's very carefully constructed, and the the upper limits of its power are clearly defined because the only reason legitimate civil government exists is to keep you free, to protect your God-given rights. Unfortunately... There are a lot of folks who want to carve out exceptions. Well, we want to find ways to put government to work for the people, which they mean their people, their interests, at the expense of other people. I'm sorry, but I'm diving in with both feet. We're, we're going dark places today. Hang on. It's going to get bumpy. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I presume I probably scared off a good portion of my audience with that first segment. I'm willing to take that risk. I'm willing to be seen as the guy who's uh, questionable, maybe a little bit crazy. Because I'm definitely out of step with a lot of folks. And, you know, it's, it's not because everybody else is stupid and I'm smart and everybody else is evil and I'm good. It's just I've I've devoted the better part of 30 years of my life to understanding why freedom matters, why limited government is a blessing, but unlimited government is not. 
Now, if you have any familiarity with history, you should probably, you know, start to pick up on the pattern where government observes no effective limits to its power. Really ugly stuff starts to happen, and it doesn't happen all at once. It comes in incrementally on cat's feet, bit by bit. Each little uh, uh, usurpation of power, each little encroachment on the rights of the people isn't that much worse than the one before. And it's a tendency of the public to sit back and to wait to, to see, you know, well, you know, surely if something is wrong, there will come a moment where we all simultaneously click, hey, you can't do that. And we all rise up together and say, you can't do that. But that shock never comes. Because too many people are either complacent about it or willfully ignorant about it. They don't want to see what they don't want to see. And there's an awful lot of people to the tunes of several millions who are actually pretty heavily invested in it. They benefit from things being the way they are. And they sure don't want to upset something that's lining their pockets or giving them the opportunity to exercise power over others. So, when it comes to people who argue against the need to free ourselves from the grasp of political government, oftentimes they don't realize their arguments work against them. I'm grateful for Kent McManigal for a piece he wrote for everythingvoluntary.com. This is my uh, moment where I will tell you, if you subscribe to their email, you're not going to be disappointed. Several times a week, you'll have some great content land in your email inbox. Stuff worth considering. You don't have to agree. But I found it to be very worthwhile, thought-provoking content, and they do a marvelous job of aggregating some points of view that you're not going to find on the typical, we're part of the government, you know, mainstream media. Ken McManigal says, any argument against the idea of having a free society, one free of political government, also works against the idea of having such a government holding society down. And he says, the only reason anyone still tries to make this argument is because crimes are called by different names when they're committed by government employees instead of by the self-employed. And when you pretend or when, when you maintain that criminal acts aren't criminal, well, you can justify just about anything. Theft is called taxation, asset forfeiture, or eminent domain. Kidnapping becomes arrest or sequestering. Slavery is called conscription. Mass murder becomes war, while while murder on a smaller scale becomes capital punishment, collateral damage, or department policy. Propaganda becomes known as schooling, patriotism, or a government press release. And torture becomes enhanced interrogation. Now, he says the biggest lie of all is when the warlords occupying your land are called the government to hide what they are and to make them sound legitimate. Often the warlords are dishonestly called leaders rather than politicians or rulers, but the lie doesn't change what they are. His point here is you wouldn't put up with being treated by self-employed criminals the way that politicians treat you. The only reason you turn a blind eye to those who violate you now is because they twist the language to favor themselves. Most people, he says, generally believe government is necessary or even good because they've endured 13 or more years of brainwashing and government-controlled schools. Getting them when they're young and gullible works wonders. But he says if you won't live peacefully among others without government looking over your shoulder, well, you aren't really a better person just because it exists. In fact... You could, if you're smart, get a government job so you can get away with acts you want to commit from a cover of legitimacy. If you can call the theft you commit taxation and pretend it's in the victim's interest, you'll probably never face justice. 
Yet the act remains the same, taking property that doesn't belong to you from the rightful owner who would rather not lose it under threat of violence. Kent McManigal notes, As has been said, anarchy is no guarantee that bad people won't violate the natural rights of others. But government guarantees they will, and will probably get away with it too. Their offenses will be ignored or excused because it's all legal. He says, if humans were angels, no political government would be necessary. But because they aren't angels, political government is a terrible idea. Now, I suspect he probably takes a little bit harder stance than I do. Because I, I don't maintain that, uh, well, you know, it's it's all bad and it all needs to go away. Um, I believe there is a proper role for government. But I also believe that that proper role means solving problems at the lowest possible level. But too many people, myself included at points in my life, were conditioned to see the state as kind of a hybrid god slash parent that's there to to take care of us and to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And all I'm asking you to consider is could such a concept be taken to extremes? Could it be taken to the point where government doesn't view you as uh, you know a living, breathing individual with, with inalienable, meaning untransferable, inviolable rights that are yours by virtue of the fact that you are a person? And instead, it turns you into a commodity. You know, maybe one step above a cattle with a tag in its ear, you know, and, and you know, the need to be herded and prodded and, and sent this direction and that direction and told what to do and how to do it. Okay, I'm going to put a couple cards on the table. These are going to make some people uncomfortable. But if you want to understand where I'm coming from, and I assume, you know, you're listening, so maybe maybe you'll at least humor me on this. You don't have to agree. But for the record, what we see playing out before us is not purely a political battle. Unfortunately, things get caught up in politics. Everything politics touches tends to become a power struggle of some sort. It, it turns into a tug-of-war. But what we're really seeing is different aspects of a battle that has been continuing and been going on since long before any of us ever existed. And you can phrase this a couple of different ways. You know, it's the battle between good and evil. It's the battle between light and darkness. I prefer to think it's the battle between choice and coercion. And for those of you who are of a more religious background, um, I don't know, maybe you recognize, maybe you remember. There was a war in heaven fought over the concept of will man be free? Will you be free to choose for yourself? Or is it better that you be forced and coerced in everything that you do so that everything is perfectly safe, everything is covered, there is no risk? Unfortunately, there's also no growth that goes along with that approach. But that's the dynamic that's driving all the little conflicts you see around us, and the big ones too. They are part of that eternal war between coercion and choice. Some prefer the term agency, but it's it's your autonomy, your ability to to act rather than just simply be an object that's acted upon. And the names and faces change over time throughout human history. 
The tactics may change from time to time, but the dynamic that drives this battle is exactly the same now as it was throughout the halls of eternity. Will you be free or not? And there's there's nuance, you know, I'm not trying to make it sound as black and white as well, you know. There's my way or there's the highway. I wouldn't be that presumptuous. But when you start to look at this in the context of maybe there's something more at work here than just simply, you know, political parties wrangling for a bit of power. At least to me, it seems to make a whole lot more sense. And it's one of the reasons why I maintain there's a very, very powerful spiritual dynamic to this battle. Choose carefully which side you wish to embrace. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I apologize, I really am on a bit of a tear today, but uh, man, it feels so good to talk about some of these things. And look, if it isn't for you, that doesn't make you a bad person. This doesn't mean that, well, you're inferior and you should run along and play with a ball or something. No, there there are some things that uh, some people are ready to hear and that others are not, and that's, and you know, or even to consider. It doesn't mean that I've got to, I've got the truth nailed down here. But I am making my best effort to speak the truth as I best understand it. There are times where I feel like my voice shakes as I speak it because it's scary and I understand, wow, this is ooh, this is going to marginalize me if, if I say this. But I will not lie to you for the sake of just putting soft words in your ears and making you feel warm and fuzzy. I think there's some very powerful... Um, there, there's, some, there's some powerful things at stake here. And there's some powerful ideas that have to be considered. And I've been at this for, for long enough that I've been, I'm willing to commit to certain truths. I keep an open mind. I'm always open for more truth to, to add to my understanding, to, to give me greater perspective on how things are. But I've also uh, come to a place where on some things I'm quite willing to commit to the truth. By the way, when people start invoking phrases like, you know, the public interest... That's a time when you and I should be paying very close attention. I don't care what you know, political persuasion you are or even where your, your understanding is at the moment. When you hear phrases like the public interest or the public wants this or we, uh, you probably should pay attention. I'd start by putting my hand on my pocketbook and being, well, okay, hang on a sec. Somebody wants access. Ethan Yang, writing for the American Institute for Public, uh, I'm sorry, the American Institute for Economic Research. A-I-E-R. He has an article called The Public Interest and the Constitutional Order. I'm going to share some excerpts here with you because I want you to to consider what he's talking about here. He says, in Ayn Rand's fictional novel Atlas Shrugged, there's a famous scene in which Hank Reardon is on trial. The following exchange occurs between Reardon and the judges. Mr. Reardon, the law which you are denouncing is based on the highest principle, the principle of the public good. At which point, Reardon says, who is the public? What does it hold as its good? 
There was a time when men believed that the good was a concept to be defined by a code of moral values and that no man had the right to seek his good through the violation of the rights of another. Now, Ethan Yang says, Rand likely included this line as a reference to the arbitrary foundations of many authoritarian government policies, such as the ones she escaped from in the Soviet Union. In regimes such as Communist China, the Soviet Union, North Korea, and Nazi Germany, vague justifications such as the public good, the people's will, the good of the nation, and other warm-sounding phrases are used to preempt gross abuses of power. If the only threshold for exercising state power is vague terms like the public good, then there really are no limits to power. Ethan Yang says one important feature of modernity and a society with enlightenment values is the idea that individuals own their bodies, which logically leads to the idea that individuals have rights that ought to be respected. People are not the property of the state, and the government simply can't tread all over its citizens' rights without a clear justification often enumerated by established codes of conduct. That is why free societies have constitutions that explicitly outline what the government can and cannot do. The population, generally speaking, consents to be governed with the understanding that the government will not only protect their rights, but act within its established boundaries. A government without clearly established powers and restrictions is a very scary thing. Such defined boundaries also give it some level of legitimacy and separate it from other organizations such as the mafia and crackpot dictatorships. He says, We call this system where everybody, even the government, is held accountable to basic and explicit standards of just conduct, the rule of law. Now he goes on to say the trial of Hank Reardon would come off as satirically amusing if it wasn't so real. In the United States, vague doctrines like the public interest play a key role in deciding whether or not certain uses of government power are permissible. In an original understanding of the Constitution, the government is bound by explicit text and intent, with very few exceptions. However, over the past hundred years or more, the, the Constitution has increasingly taken a deferential backseat to the will of the government although often through the executive branch and the administrative state. And here he goes into some history that's really useful in understanding how this came about. He says, The use of the phrase public interest famously arises in Munn v. Illinois, a Supreme Court case decided in 1877 regarding government regulation of prices set by privately held companies. Now, the companies being targeted with regulation argued that they were protected by the Constitution via the 14th Amendment, which outlines due process and equal protection. A similar lockdown, or I'm sorry, a similar argument would apply today to businesses that were targeted by the litany of arbitrary lockdown regulations, such as non-essential business closures. However, as we know, the court did not rule in the business's favor setting precedent for the virtually non-existent economic protections we have today. By the way, a later case, Nebia v. New York, would drop the standard even lower to a rational basis, not a public interest. This is a summary provided by Oya's notes. Justice Waite for the court took a broad view of the state's police power. He argued that the states may regulate the use of private property when such regulation becomes necessary for the public good. Waite resurrected an ancient legal doctrine to support his view. When property is affected with a public interest, it ceases to be juris privati only. 
end quote. I mean, look, you don't have to be cynical, do you, to recognize that that's going to look a lot like a blank check to most politicians. Well, if I can just say this is in the public interest, why, I can justify just about anything. Ethan Yang says, under this understanding, the government could exercise power over anything it wishes, provided it can find a reason why it would be in the public interest. Oh, gee, do you think if you set a few government lawyers loose to find a public interest that they'd have any trouble conjuring up something? Yeah, he thinks that uh, there's probably a lot of people employed by the state for that very purpose. Hey, Find a reason. Find something that we can cloak in flowery, legalistic language that will justify whatever it is we really want to do. Yes, sir. The heels click, and they're off to work. Ethan Yang says this means law-abiding citizens and their private property, be it a business or an intimate possession, are never safe from the ambitions of the state. That's because it has no real meaning, and it's impossible to truly understand. Associate Professor of Communication at the University of Queensland, Jane Johnston, writes, The public interest is such a complex and tricky concept to navigate because it has intentionally evolved as ambiguous and mutable. It has no overarching definition because it is contextually determined in scope and purpose. Now, Ethan Yang goes on to point out public interest legal scholar Edwin Rikosh gives a far more telling definition of what the public interest really entails by writing, quote, at least in Justice Marshall's understanding of public interest law, enlarging and strengthening the public sphere is an important public interest law objective in the United States as well, end quote. He also notes that Justice Louis Brandis took a similar view of the public interest. In fact, before being appointed to the Supreme Court by Woodrow Wilson, Professor Peter Dreyer explains that Brandis, quote, served as one of President Wilson's key economic advisors persuading the president to create the Federal Reserve System and the Federal Trade Commission and to push for the Clayton Antitrust Act and the 16th Amendment, ratified in 1913, which allowed Congress to levy an income tax. End quote. So this brings us to the administrative state, which has since exploded in power and scale in recent decades, but is most commonly associated with the ambitions of Wilson who viewed constitutional limits on power with disdain. In his eyes and in the eyes of many who believe they represent the public interest, government power and expertise are the solutions to society's ills. Ethan Yang goes on to say, This idea has certainly been represented by the jurisprudence of progressive judges and the attitudes of progressive intellectuals, who, much like Wilson, view the public interest much like they view the Constitution. That is, It ought to be malleable and change with the times, but in practice simply change to the behest of those in power. Law professor David Upman explains this when he notes, Times change. Rights change, whether by addition, subtraction, or otherwise. The job of the progressive jurist is to facilitate and, if necessary, initiate this redefinition. How could that be anything but a blank check with mischief written on the subject line. I mean, it's human nature, right? This is It's human nature to, to do what's in your best interest or what benefits you the most. For people in power, yeah, this is it. Let's just invoke the public interest and we can do whatever we want, regardless 
of the wise limitations on our power that were set in place by individuals, uh, well, let's just say with a lot more foresight than uh, our current politicians possess. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. I'm sharing an article here from Ethan Yang from the American Institute for Economic Research. Public interest and the constitutional order. I know for some people when you invoke words like constitution, you know, their eyes glaze over. Oh, you're one of those, you know, John Bircher or whatever. But when you understand that the U.S. Constitution is put in place and was put in place not only to call the federal government into existence, but also to very carefully outline what its powers are and define the upper limits of those powers and to forbid the government from acting or operating beyond those powers. I mean, it's funny. I Every time, you know, someone who's pushing for gun control says, well, you know, all we need to do is repeal that Second Amendment. Uh, it's better if it had never existed. And what they don't understand, this is what they fail to understand. The right to keep and bear arms is part of the essential right to life. Every living thing will try to defend itself with whatever tools it has at hand. That's a right that exists and existed long before 1787 when the Constitutional Convention took place in Philadelphia. It's a right that continues to exist independent of government. But some people have got it in their heads. Well, no, no, no. The Constitution gives us the right to free speech and gives us the right to keep and bear arms and the right to be free from quartering troops in our houses and gives us the right to privacy. No, it doesn't. It forbids government. It's binding on government, not on you and not on me. So I'll go back to something I mentioned in the first segment of the show. Your rights depend on you understanding what they are, claiming using, and defending them. You can do it peacefully, but it's going to make waves because there are people who want to control you and there are people who want to, you know, put you under their boot or put a saddle on you and ride around whipping you with a riding crop. If you know what your rights are, all you have to do is withhold your consent. And that's frustrating, at least to the people who want to be in power. Back to Ethan Yang's article. The Public Interest and the Constitutional Order. In his book, Justice Neil Gorish offers a stinging critique of the progressive view of constitutional rights by citing the infamous Supreme Court case Korematsu v. United States, where the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II was found to be constitutional. And he contends that it was precisely because of this fluid view of the Constitution and the rights it protects that led the court to rule that such egregious government policies should be allowed to stand because they believed that the war effort shouldn't be impeded. Now, Ethan Yang says a more originalist understanding of the Constitution would have held that the government still needs to follow the text of the document regardless of how fashionable its policies may be. And if I can just offer this this quick sidebar to that, can you see the wisdom in why 
There is no escape clause or there is no exceptions clause. You know, the Constitution shall apply and you know, we, the undersigned here, agree to this. The state shall abide by this unless something scares us. Because if they put that kind of an exception in there, you know there would be endless opportunities for scary things to be held up and justified as, you know, this is why we have to violate it. And by the way, there were flaws within the Constitution itself. I mean, after all, it uh, pretty much codified slavery, right? Well, how can we get around this? Uh, Well, for the census, we'll count them as three-fifths of a person. And, you know, the Fugitive Slave Act, that was constitutional. So, yeah, in some places, in some ways, it should be changeable, which there was a fifth, uh, there's, I'm sorry, an Article 5 amendment process given whereby, you know, states could amend the Constitution as necessary. They don't even bother with that now. Now, with this executive pen, I'll just sign this order and it has the force of law. That's pretty scary. That's That's a blank check for someone with ambition to go nuts. Ethan Yang says, Today, we certainly live under the consequences of such a fluid way of thinking about individual rights and the Constitution. That the government, often through the unaccountable administrative state, may exercise vast power over society and the lives of individual citizens. Power conceived not from clearly outlined rules, but under the pretense that it believes that what it is doing has a rational basis and that it's serving what it defines as the public interest. A definition that has encompassed everything from constructing a regulatory apparatus that not only intrudes on economic and civic freedom, but costs trillions of dollars a year in compliance fees, to an outright assault on the Constitution, like the Patriot Act in response to 9-11. Ethan Yang says, clearly the pursuit of the public interest has resulted in anything but. So the key takeaways here, he says, the public interest and other phrases like it have far too much importance in the functions of our government. No honest person could ever look at the Constitution and suggest that it can exist harmoniously with the many exceptions that have been carved out over time in the name of the public interest. Much like every other vague objective put out by those in power, equality and uh, in power, equality and equity being two of their vogue phrases, by the way, its doctrine of application is fundamentally opposed to the idea of limited government and individual liberty. The principle of self-ownership and basic inalienable rights cannot exist in a world where the exercise of power is not governed by explicit restrictions, but by nebulous doctrines such as the public interest. In theory, the public interest and other vague objectives like it have no discrete meaning. In practice, they simply represent the ambitions and goals of those in power. Wow. Beautifully stated, Ethan Yang. Might want to subscribe to the uh, AIER.org email. By the way, seven days a week, I get these in my inbox. They have a wide variety of topics that uh, cover a lot of different subjects. I just found this one particularly useful. Let me give you a quick uh, rundown here of some of the different things. Um, This is from one of the emails I received over the weekend. So AIER had articles about uh, remembering the Tiananmen Square massacre. That also, by the way, was from Ethan Yang. Um, Inequality can be hurtful in unfree societies. 
uh, talking, let's see, Richard Ebling had, a, had an essay on Jacques Novikow, sociologist of peace and freedom. Uh, critical race theory comes for the legal academy. And fish, rice, and what the green movement really stands for. I mean, just there's this is just a tiny sampling, but they, they have a lot of different articles that to cover a lot of different topics. If you're a person who wants to just have a better vantage point from which to understand things that are going on without getting bogged down in, you know, the bumper sticker slogans, red state, blue state, all that back and forth, I strongly recommend it. Now, a couple things also that came up over the weekend. Um, I don't know if you if you heard President Trump made a speech, and it sounds like uh, he's he's still angling to be a player in the uh, 2022 elections, possibly in 2024. I don't know. I'm not uh, I'm not of the the mindset that uh, hey, this particular politician is going to be the one to save us. But a lot of people still fall under that spell. And uh, this is all I'm going to ask you to consider. I don't want to bash on Trump. I don't want to sit here and bash on Biden. And hopefully you notice I really don't spend a lot of time talking about the personalities involved. There's a reason for that. I don't spend time talking about the personalities because the personalities and the issues are usually pretty transitory. Okay, you get some long-timers. I mean, Joe Biden's been about 50 years or close to it uh, serving in public office. The principles, though, are what will bring us back on course, if that's our desire. And if we don't want to get back on course, if we want to continue to drift with, you know, wherever the current is taking us at the moment, then uh, this is this is what we have to focus on. we got to focus on what are... What are the principles? You can ignore it if you just want to drift, right? But if you really want to see things move in a productive direction, you've got to be willing to focus on the principles. And by the way, I'm not suggesting that, therefore, once everybody understands the principles, everything is just going to magically right itself. No, um, I think what's going to happen is something probably closer to this. People who understand principles will recognize, hey, government at the local level, the state level, the federal level, isn't following this principle. And then they make the conscious effort to withdraw their consent. That's a very peaceful thing, by the way. You withdraw your consent. You simply stop giving legitimacy to, you know, those leaders or to that particular government entity. There's actually a marvelous essay on this from a Frenchman who was 18 years old at the time he wrote it back in the 1500s, uh, Etienne de la Boite. Discourse on Voluntary Servitude. I know it's a mouthful, but boy, it's powerful stuff. Take away the support, and they collapse. That's how it works. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. I trust that you're having a marvelous day. And you are fully ready to engage in some wrong think. 
I know it sounds really subversive, but actually, this is what responsible people do. People who are willing to take uh, responsibility for their own lives, people who are willing to claim, use, and defend their natural rights. You got to be willing to question the uh, prevailing narratives. You got to be willing to to call out the conventional wisdom on occasion. And yeah, I'll admit uh, there are times where it's going to feel pretty lonely because a lot of the public just simply doesn't want to do that. It's okay. That's all right. Finding the power to make your feet uh, move, you know, without uh, waiting for permission to do so. That's part of being free as well. Got some great things to cover in this hour. Uh, one of the things I wanted to share with you um, is coming up in the back half of the hour, we're going to be talking with um, Dr. Shannon Brooks from Monticello College, one of the sponsors of this program. And I hope that you will listen as we talk about the new economy. There's a lot of shifts that have taken place economically. Uh, pretty dramatic stuff, especially in the last year, but not all of it's bad news. If you want to hear about the new economy, about the skills, the kind of education needed to prosper in the midst of all the changes, I think you're going to find this really useful. Right now, I want to start off with changing how we see the state. That's an essential part of claiming, using, and defending your natural rights. Of course, it's easier said than done because a vast majority of people have been conditioned to see the state as kind of a combination of God and parent in their lives came across an article from Sheldon Richmond about uh, what the state really is, which, more than anything, this helps make the case of why we should be minimizing its influence in our lives. Sheldon Richmond writes, To better understand the nature of government, one can think of it as an agency that sells or, more precisely, rents power to others. The greater the power and the wider its scope, the more opportunities the state's agents will have to sell access to it in return for favors. Now, of course, the demand for that power will also be greater. This stands to reason. If the government's allowed to make many important decisions about private activity, people will want to influence or control that decision-making. And they'll be willing to pay for that influence as long as the price is less than the expected payoff. In other words, the supply of government power creates its own demand. This answers the concern over the corrupting influence of money in politics. If government has nothing to sell... No one will be trying to buy. Now, he says, this is not to say that all government officials do is rent out power. Many activities can be attributed to their own agendas. Like all people, they are prone to various incentives and foibles that lead them to do things that others who are affected either do not like or approve only because they can't imagine an alternative. So the motives of state agents can vary. Self-regard and paternalism, for two examples... Motives can be tricky to identify. A good deal of self-deception can always be involved, and words often part ways with the truth. Nevertheless, he says, much of what state agents do constitutes, in effect, the renting out of power to well-connected private interests. Now, the renting out of power can also have various motives. Power may be used to benefit special interests as a way to garner political support, financial and otherwise. Campaign finance is the most obvious example, though many more subtle ways also exist. And again, the motive for renting power to special interests could also have paternalistic powers. Politicians could erroneously figure that for the good of all, certain people ought to have access to power that no one else has. Motives, of course, tell you nothing about the morality or effectiveness of any particular action. So Sheldon Richmond says private interests that pay to get their hands on power 
can have various various motives also. But he says, I would guess that most of the time that motive is going to be self-regard. Now, he says, I should note that I'm using the term rent idiosyncratically. Uh, Economists use the term rent-seeking to label the private pursuit of returns through government favors. So by that, they mean that private interests seek returns on investment that exceed what they would earn in the market without power being exercised on their behalf. He says, in his case, I'm using rent in the colloquial sense in which people pay to use something, in this case, without acquiring ownership. Now, he says, it's easy to think of examples of what I've been saying here. When a business firm lobbies for a tariff or an import quota, they are seeking higher prices and profits through the state's power to burden foreign competitors with taxes and import limits. Likewise, when firms seek licenses, subsidies, and other political favors, they grab for advantages that their competitors don't have. Similarly, complicated financial regulations that burden smaller and potential upstart competitors are likely to be welcomed, if not written, by large dominant institutions. And when things go bust, uninformed people will readily blame the private firms without seeing the state's essential culpability. By the way, he has a link to an article in there called Wall Street Couldn't Have Done It Alone. Well worth your time. Sheldon Richmond says another source of market extra or extra market advantage is government contracting. Why should a firm take chances in an uncertain marketplace with fickle consumers if it can obtain guarantees by selling things to government agencies? Military contractors come to mind immediately. Billions of dollars of taxpayer money go to such companies every year. Private companies can't tax anyone, but government contractors, in effect, can do just that. The more powerful the state, the more possibilities exist for favoritism. And he says, notice that favoritism breeds dependence on and support for the state. So for obvious reasons, military contractors are unlikely to be convinced by arguments for a non-interventionist foreign policy. Likewise, companies that rely on tariffs and import quotas probably won't find inspiration in the great British free traders Richard Cobden and John Bright. But Sheldon Richmond says understanding the state is the first step toward rethinking the state, which is necessary for changing one's view about its value. If people think the government is nothing more than a well-intended social service agency, the organizer of a huge and benevolent mutual aid society, well, their attitude will be favorable overall, even if they dislike some of what the state does. But he says, if people come to see that the state exists to amass power and private resources in large part to distribute it to special interests, the majority who are victims might begin to object and demand change. Boy, is that the truth. That's, uh, and that's the key. Once you realize that, hey, (laughs) this is, this is uh, not operating in our interest, it's hard to go back to seeing it as, oh, it's, it's my protector, my friend, my, the one who hugs me. Okay, well, puts me in a straitjacket, but still, hugs me. <laughs> I want to share a, an article here from Caitlin Johnstone. I, look, I'm a political agnostic. I try to persuade people, hey, it's, it, I, I can help you cast out your political demons. You know, if we need to perform an exorcism, and some people are politically possessed. I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek, but I bet you you could probably think of a few people who are really decent, rational, normal folks until the topic of politics comes up, and then they morph into something that's very aggressive and very demeaning. And that's uh, that's a little bit spooky. 
Caitlin Johnstone has a great article, which I will link to in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, about how mainstream politics offers voters the illusion of change without ever risking any kind of substantive change that would actually decentralize its control or power. The headline is, Mainstream Politics Offer Pretend Revolutions to a Discontented Public. If you've been caught up in all the presidential stuff, this is probably worth your time. She says, in 2008, the American public was fed up with the disastrous status quo politics of George W. Bush. So they came together and elected a progressive candidate who campaigned on hope and change to replace him. But no progress happened. The hope and change never came. Barack Obama continued and expanded all his predecessors' most depraved policies at home and abroad. And it wasn't long before the initial elation wore off and the illusion that things were looking up evaporated. In other words, it was like Bush never left office. Worn out and disgusted by crushing neoliberal policies at home and murderous neoconservative policies abroad, Americans elected a political neophyte who ran on a populist platform which criticized both Bush and Obama. Trump promised to drain the swamp, end the wars, fight the establishment in the interests of the ordinary people. This time, for sure, there would be change. But the wars kept going, and the swamp got fuller. And the U.S. empire kept chugging along on the same trajectory it had been on during the Bush administration and the Obama administration. She says, despite all this, the Democratic Party and its allied media institutions acted as though some drastic deviation from the norm had taken place, insisting the U.S. had been plunged from a free democracy respected around the world into an isolationist fascist utopia or dystopia, rather. (laughs) Okay, well... We're going to come back to this in just a few moments. She has a point worth considering here, and that is you were given the appearance that, oh, it's all changed. By the way, we're given the same thing in the 2020 election. Nothing changed. The power is still being abused, just as it always was. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So again, I'm sharing this article from Caitlin Johnstone. Mainstream politics offer pretend revolutions to a discontented public. And I think she's accurately portraying what happened, not only in the 2008 election that saw Barack Obama come to power, but the 2016 election that saw Trump come to power. She says, in order to stop fascism, we were told the American people had yet another American's up, another people's uprising against the corrupt status quo and elected, I'm going to put that in air quotes, uh, Obama's vice president. Lifelong corporate crony and empire lackey Joe Biden now sits in the White House advancing all the same murderous, oppressive, exploitative, authoritarian policies as his predecessors as a result of the latest fake decoy revolution against tyranny. She says, and that's all mainstream electoral politics ever is in the U.S. empire. It's a fake decoy revolution staged for the public every few years, so they don't have a real one. It's kind of a pressure relief valve, I guess you could say. A symbolic ceremony where the public pretends to cast the abusive status quo into the sea, so they feel like the battle against their oppressors has been won. And then their oppressors just keep right on oppressing them. 
Caitlin Johnstone says every few years the public gets to choose between two reliable lackeys of the oligarchic empire, and then all of the evils of that empire get pinned upon the winner. The public then directs their rage at the lackey rather than the actual power structure that's been oppressing them, after which they have another election to rid themselves of the scoundrel once and for all. They hug, they cry, they celebrate, and the oppression machine continues completely uninterrupted. She actually uses a quote here from Gore Vidal, who said, It doesn't actually make any difference whether the president is Republican or Democrat. The genius of the American ruling class is that it has been able to make the people think they've had something to do with electing the presidents of two, for 200 years when they've had absolutely nothing to say about the candidates or the policies or the way the countries run. A very small group controls just about everything. End quote. Caitlin Johnston says that small group is the plutocratic class whose legalized bribery and propaganda machine has immense influence over U.S. politics, as well as the imperial war machine and special interest groups with whom the plutocratic class is allied. She says it's necessary to form coalitions of support within that power cluster if one wants to become president in the managed democracy that is the United States. And no part of that power cluster is going to support a president who won't reliably advance the interests of the oligarchic empire. Great article. There's a link to it in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I love her last line here. She says, what's needed is for the people to awaken to the truth. An entire empire is built upon a pair of closed eyelids. So if you want to free yourself, it's got to start at the individual level. And that starts with an expansion of your awareness whether you're talking about the consequences of one's addiction leading to getting them sober or an expansion of awareness of, uh, you know, injustice leading to, you know, correcting those problems. Making people aware that the mass media are lying to us about what's real, making them aware of the horrors of war and interventionism, aware of the underlying dynamics of injustice that are grinding everyday Americans into the dirt, that can lead to the chain reactive, reaction, rather, which sees people using the power of its numbers to shrug off the chains of oppression. Probably something worth considering. All right, one final note here. Wanted to share with you this article from Anders Koskinen about how our culture has been shaken but not stirred by big tech. He says, as big tech continues to infiltrate the American media production, its woke corporate claws sink deeper into Hollywood, infecting beloved media franchises as they go. And here's the example. Amazon's acquisition of MGM Holdings, Inc. It's the latest move in this process, and it's a change that will decelerate, or accelerate rather, the decline of the American culture. Surprisingly, Amazon's looming presence poses a threat that even members of creative Hollywood elite say they're concerned about. Americans have likely gotten used to Jeff Bezos' expansionist empire gobbling up other enterprises like the Washington Post, Audible, and Twitch, to name a few. But the purchase of the nearly 100-year-old film studio MGM and its intellectual property presents new opportunities for a coordinated redressing of beloved media franchises to fit a new cultural narrative. Even writers deeply entrenched in Hollywood's den of leftism are casting wary glances at this new purchase. Waiting for the, writing for the New York Times, John Logan, a scriptwriter for Gladiator and the James Bond film Skyfall, among others, fears an overactive Amazon and its profit-hungry focus groups might strip the world's most famous spy of his martinis 
penchant for violence or English accent. Corporate partners come and go, but James Bond endures, writes Logan. Now, Logan's fear of corporate oversight quashing the creative freedoms of artists may be off target against the backdrop of contemporary American culture. His primary concern seems to be that big corporations, driven by profit, will insist on material that makes for good sequels, sequels rather, or which, uh, or else which can be diluted to be generally inoffensive. So Logan shouldn't fear for the death of James Bond's famous martini, shaken not stirred, if only because Amazon will want to continue to profit from product placements in James Bond films, solicited from vodka, gin, and vermouth companies. So it's far more likely that Amazon will insist on the very changes that Logan fears they will quash because those changes promote the moral freefall today's culture promotes. For instance, Logan discusses how he and director Sam Mendes planned a scene in Skyfall. Quote, now the moment 007 first encounters his arch nemesis is often the iconic moment in a Bond movie. The scene around which you build a lot of the narrative and cinematic rhythms. Think about Bond's first meeting of Dr. No or Goldfinger or Blofeld, all classic scenes in the franchise. Well, Sam and I boldly announced we wanted to do this pivotal scene as a homoerotic seduction. End quote. Now, Anders Koskinen says, look, at present, such things as a homoerotic seduction are no longer considered controversial in American culture. Save the possible objection by the LGBT movement that this homoeroticism is coming from the film's villain rather than the hero. Neither big tech nor Hollywood has shown hesitation to push the boundaries of socially acceptable content in film and television as of late. From the famously adult content of HBO's Game of Thrones, Netflix Netflix placement of homosexual couples in children's cartoons, and Amazon's hiring of an intimacy coordinator for their upcoming Lord of the Rings series on their prime streaming service, big tech is heavily invested in pushing their own version of morality via the production of cultural content. And Anders Koskinen says these cultural infiltrations by the deep-pocketed progressives of Silicon Valley and the tech industry writ large are what Keith Preston dubs rainbow capitalism in a recent piece for Chronicles. This conjunction of what we used to call big business and progressive politics has happened in large part because men like Bezos and Zuckerberg and a host of others recognize that their long-term interests are best served by the complete deracination and demoralization of the American people, Preston writes. Logan should not fear an end of his ability to write self-proclaimed controversy into beloved media franchises such as James Bond. After all, the next spy to take up the 007 codename is set to be a woman. Rather, as Preston alludes to, it's far more likely that Amazon and other large corporations will insist on what Logan believes to be controversial precisely because the goal is to embed such ideas so deeply in the American psyche as to render them uncontroversial. Virtually all cultural, demographic, generational, economic, political, and technological trends currently favor the left, Logan says. Opinion polls to the degree that these can be believed indicate the public opinion is moving leftward on virtually every contentious social issue, particularly among young people. The traditional media, cable networks, and social media combine to provide the cultural left with a propaganda apparatus that's nearly all-encompassing and strengthened by the left's domination of virtually all ideas, industries, and professions, from education to advertising to law to human resources. So it's not the fear of poorly made sequels that should cause concern about Amazon's acquisition of MGM or Disney's acquisition of 20th Century Fox. 
Anders Koskinen says it's the fact that this consolidation gives ever fewer men and women complete control over larger swaths of the American cultural landscape, and it gives them the power to terraform it to their preferred climate. Sounds like something you and I should be aware of and maybe fortifying ourselves against. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. You have heard me talk about the great sponsors of this show, including MonticelloCollege.org. And I'm very happy to welcome the president and founder of Monticello College, Shannon Brooks, here with me. Uh, Dr. Brooks, good to catch up with you once again. Hey, Brian. How are you doing? Fantastic. I know that you are a busy guy. And and when I say that, it's not just, yeah, you know, Shannon's a workaholic. I mean, you are engaged in good stuff from sunup to sundown. I seem to remember you telling me once upon a time, sleep is really overrated. And now you're doing everything in your power to prove that with, with what you're doing with your life. For the sake of people who are meeting you via this program for the first time, tell us just a little bit about yourself, who you are, and what you do. Sure. Um, having spent years under the tutelage of of the, of the likes of Cleon Skousen and Reverend Don Sills, Bill Doty and such, um, really got involved uh, heavily with all over the mill years and years and years ago. We started one college and we started a new one here uh, about 10 years ago, Monticello College here in Monticello, Utah. And um, really trying to look at higher education from the perspective of what, rather than, than, you know, meet the needs of higher education, how about meeting the needs of the students? And so we've created a program, which is a pretty strong liberal arts program on a, on an 80 acre farm here in Southeastern Utah. So that's, that's pretty much what we're doing. It's, and, and I'm, I'm going to just take a moment here to kind of share some personal testimony of, look, there is nothing as life changing as, as a person really digging into a classical liberal arts education. And it's not because it's going to make you the smartest person in the room. It's about helping to, to knock off the rough corners and polish your personal character to help you personally become a better version of yourself than you were before. And and since I was introduced to this, I have found it to be a lot of hard work. I've also found it to be extremely rewarding. Everything in my life has changed for the better and taken on deeper meaning because of that approach. And I want to tell you, you are one of the, the instrumental people in helping introduce me to that idea and, and helping mentor me into that process. Now, you are here today to talk about something that's going on that uh, I, I think a lot of people are going to identify with and relate to, maybe not because they want to, but because they're going to see the necessity. Let's talk about the new economy. And and I don't yeah. mean in the sense that, uh, you know, some politician is getting up saying, hey, we're going to have a new economy. Talk to me about the reality of what's happening economically around us. Yeah, so for the last 10 years or so, we've been looking at a phenomenon that's happening with college graduates and college students, and that is... Um, uh, the fact that they have a difficult time finding jobs when, when they get out of college and that they are burdened, and I mean burdened, by student debt. Um, some of these kids are anywhere from fifty dollars to uh, $200,000 of debt. And, you know, to a 20-something, that you might as well just put a gun to their head and pull the trigger because they can't not visualize how to get out of that, right? So over the last 10 years, we've, or really the last 15 years, we said, how, how can we create a, a, a higher education environment that that keeps them from getting into this debt and solves the problem of employment or income 
uh, producing endeavors after education, uh, after, after their, their collegiate experience is over. And that's what we've come up with here at, at Monticello College is what we call the new economy. So basically it means you get a really great liberal arts education. Um, you learn how to build a house without debt. And all, we'll, we'll go into detail on all these. You learn how to grow your own food. You learn how to live off grid if you desire to do that. And you learn how to start your own business that is producing enough to, uh, to, to maintain a, a good uh, standard of living. And that's, that's what our program is about. Okay, now I want to address a concern that I know some people are going to go right to, and that is, well, now, is this a way of turning your back on society and essentially, you know, uh, melting away into the hills to become one of the hill people, you know, very self-sufficient, but I don't want nothing to do with your modern world. Um, I don't think that's the goal, is it? No, no, no. In fact, um, we're working with, with a number of different parties, but we're trying to set up a scenario where we kind of bring back homesteading on the fringe. What that means is there's a bunch of federal land here in the state of Utah, for example, that is on the, the, the city limits or right at the city limits of a number of small towns and cities here in Monticello, <clears throat> in Utah, rather. And we're trying to, to, to create a scenario where we can get that land back from the federal government, turn it over to these young people, 10, 20, 30 acres um, that's on the right on the the, uh, the 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 boundary of a city or a town. So they're not off in a hill somewhere. They're right at the edge of town um, where farming stuff has to happen. Um, but they're able to do that. And then with all the skills we're giving them, they can set up businesses and farms, which we anticipate will be become the centers of farmers markets, will become the centers of, of bringing school kids out to learn how to blacksmith and how to do all these different things that our students are learning how to do. Um, but not not away from society, but on the edge of society so that they can then have an influence, but have the, the room they need to, to grow and do what they do. And there are some pretty interesting things taking place right around us right now. Um, I think about a couple of ransomware incidents within the last couple of weeks. One of them shut down a very major gasoline pipeline to a lot of the East Coast. And I know that there were you know official people saying, now don't panic, there's no gas shortage. But guess what? There was a gas shortage. <laughs> there were yeah. people lining up and there were gas stations out of fuel. And, and, and we're already nervous from you know the the pandemic response and all the stuff that's going on there's a lot of instability now the meat packers apparently have had you know some ransomware and so the the point here is not therefore we should all be fearful it's just to recognize there are some pretty unique threats developing and there are some some sources of instability in this world that can keep people preoccupied from from actually using what influence they have in their lives more effectively. What I hear, Shannon, is you're you're talking about people becoming self sufficient enough and and innovative enough and and able to adapt that they will continue to be able to exercise their influence effectively, no matter where they are, no matter what they're doing, because they know those basic needs can be taken care of. That, that, that's right. Look, let me talk about this in in terms of means of production. When when you and I earn money, Brian. We, buy, we earn money for one purpose, and that is to acquire commodities. And what we're saying is that to the degree that you can establish your own commodities, grow them or produce them yourself, that is a level of self-reliance. It's not saying you want to go out in the hills. It's saying, I want to be more stable. I don't want to be at the, at the uh, mercy of some, you know, grapes coming from Chile. I'd rather just grow the grapes here myself and harvest my grapes and eat my grapes. Um, and you, you can do that right smack dab in the middle of a city. You don't have to be, uh, you know, out in the hills somewhere, uh, you know, 
smoking the the wacky tobacco. You, you you can do it right smack in the middle of Chicago or or New York or anywhere or you know in a more rural setting. It's the idea of being more dependent on yourself that creates stability for you, creates stability for your community. And we've gone a long ways away from that. The entire American culture was built on that idea of being what we call self-sufficient or self-reliant, but but not in a crazy way, in a way of creating economic stability for you and yours. Yeah, there are a lot of folks who have, have started to look to a different source for sustenance rather than their own willingness to work, their own ingenuity. And, and that source, of course, is Uncle Sam or or whatever their government is. And And you know what? It's pretty tough to to combat that mindset when Uncle Sam is handing out check after check after check with their name on it. That's a pretty attractive thing. I mean, you have a sizable portion of the labor force that finds it's more profitable to sit home and collect checks than to go out and look for a job. Well, and of course, we're seeing that today, right? Um, employers are having hard, you know, harder and harder time finding good quality employees. So, um, yeah, that's that's one of the things that we're, we're trying to accomplish. And when I when we expose these kids to these ideas, which are very simple and basic, their eyes light up. They, they just had no idea that you could go do some of the stuff yourself, even in your own backyard. It's, it's a mentality, right? It's not so much a system as it is a mentality of how do you approach life. And, and we're finding that creates not only, you know, some strength and self-sufficiency, but it also creates serious self-confidence. Oh, absolutely. And there's, there's an added benefit, and this is one of the things that uh, really makes it resonate with me. I'm kind of a fan of freedom. I don't want somebody putting a saddle on me and then sitting astride me, hitting me with a riding crop and telling me, go here, do that, you know, pick that up. You know, um, Some people prefer to be told what to do. Um, I'm not one of those people looking for that. I, I feel like I have a personal mission, something that I'm supposed to do and I'm supposed to figure out, and with God's help, I'm going to accomplish it. This is the kind of education that helps unlock not only that uh, the understanding of how to do it, but how to how to drill down and get to that sense of purpose that's that's individual to each unique. It's unique to each individual person, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, and I, I don't know what order we want to go in here, but I would like to hit each one of these areas that I talked about because the way we're approaching it is very uh, it's it's you know revolutionary for our time, but it, you know it's just how everybody did it five generations ago. Okay, um, let's let's pick when, up in the next segment because we're, we're about 30 okay. seconds from our break. Before we go there, though, I want to make sure people know where they can access you and your school and get more information for themselves. Where would you send them? MonticelloCollege.org. MonticelloCollege.org. Okay, it's it's really easy to find, and I have a link in the show notes. If anybody you know really is feeling lazy and like, well, I'll just go to the show notes. You click there, I'll send you right to them. We are talking with Dr. Shannon Brooks. We will be back just the other side of these messages. Please stay with us. is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm talking with Dr. Shannon Brooks. He is the founder and president of Monticello College. Now, I say Monticello, but uh, you you get the idea. uh, It's a wonderful liberal arts school 
that uh, only a few very fortunate people have heard about and even a few fortunate people have attended. And I'm here to tell you this is something that's a game changer for the times that we live in because this is about becoming the best version of yourself. Shannon, you mentioned before we, we went to break, it starts with education. And, and let's, let's pick sure. it up there and run with it. Yeah, so, so we do um, our version of liberal arts is what we call library education, which is, which is liberal arts, but it's, it's, it's got a, a flavor of manual arts in it and, and, and a number of other things. But the idea here is, is to engage in a new economy. You've got to be able to understand the past. You've got to know how to interface with the future and the present. And so we focus heavily on, on education from that perspective. Our students can read Hebrew, Latin, and Greek when they graduate. Um, and they've got a whole host of skill sets. We'll get into that a little bit more. Another thing you've got to have, what we have found is that if you factor in housing, food, and energy, that's somewhere for some people as high as 75% of your monthly outgo. So we said, all right, if we can tackle those three and do it different than everybody else is doing it right now, then our students can live the same standard of living that the average American's living on 25% of what everybody else is doing it on. So how do you do that? Well, first of all, housing. You've got to be able to create a housing situation that has no debt attached to it and preferably no payments attached to it. And there's a number of ways we do that. We help them get, get into to raw land specifically or some places that have, have housing on it already. We teach them a number of different construction methods. So uh, regular stick build, straw bale, cob, compressed earth block, you name it. Um, and how to do this in phases. You build a portion of your house, live in that, and then build the next portion. It's over time. And it's, it's not, not the complete thing. You walk in and, you know, chandeliers all of a sudden. But it is certainly a way to have uh, a lot less of an economic crunch on you. Um, house or food, rather. Food is another major, major component of the monthly expenses. And our students grow their own food here on campus. After four years of growing your own food, everything from plants uh, to, to animals, um, uh, storage, harvesting, you know, uh, canning and, and, and dehydration, all, all of that stuff, um, they, they have a pretty good handle on that by the time they leave. Um, so those are the t- two of the major. The third one is energy. Um, you know, the average person in America is somewhere between $150 and $500 a month on energy alone. Um, we teach them how to be off grid. We show them how to live with, with, uh, uh, with, with wood or how to insulate your houses so well that you don't have to have much energy. Again, that's another area that you can really decrease. And then, of course, all of this is built around the idea that you're creating your own business. Now, that can be a lot of different areas. Uh, we have kids that want to go into homesteading. We have, we have uh, uh, students that want to be novelists. Um, no matter what you do for a living, you have to have food, you have to have a house, you have to have energy. And if we can help you with start a business and do it on three quarters less than what everybody else is doing it on, you're going to be able to engage the new economy. Given some of the things that we're seeing right now, particularly in terms of, uh, of inflation, as well as uh, you know, other monetary policy concerns, you can see where something like this would, would be very helpful. Anybody who's been to the, to the, well, okay, anybody who's shopped for a house recently, 
especially right. in the Intermountain West. They know what sticker shock is. You're starting to see it now when you go to Costco. Um, everything is starting to cost more. You need to understand why that's happening and, and understand you don't have to you know, go out there and become a multi-multi-millionaire in order to, to have a very he- healthy and fulfilling life if you know how to do these things for yourself. And I love the fact, Shannon, you were saying what you talk about and what you teach these, these young people is debt-free it's right. debt-free living as opposed to, yeah, just borrow it now, worry about how to pay for it later. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, Julie and I, uh, because we really want to pound this home, we're living right now in a tiny house we built last year um, on campus. So we can show students that a couple can live in 450 square feet easily. Uh, you know, in my little town here, uh, there's a road called Uranium Drive. And this was because back in the day, um, a lot of uranium was actually processed here in Monticello. Uh, the average house size down there um, is about a thousand square feet, and these are homes of of six and eight and ten kids. So, this idea of having to have three thousand square feet for a family of four is, is is pretty ridiculous. But that's where we've gotten to. And it, of course, if grandpa has it, and grandma and grandma and grandpa have it, and mom and dad have it, twenty somethings think they have to have it, and the truth is, they don't. Yeah, and and things are are shifting around us, and just just because things have been this way for you know as long as most of us can remember, doesn't mean that it's written in, that it's written in stone, and it's going to stay that way indefinitely. So right. it's it's good right. to be able to learn to think creatively and outside the box, and who knows, maybe think innovatively in ways that will change things for the better. Maybe this becomes the new standard or the new norm. Well, that, it's going to be the new norm for, for our our kids, our, our students, our graduates. Um, you know, this is just one step beyond the whole van living and, and you know, living on a sailboat, uh, which, you know, those people, it's great, it's fun, but they always tend to, after five or ten years of doing that, they end up getting, you know, something on solid ground again um, that, that doesn't move. Uh, and we're just kind of beating them to, to the punch here. But we're, we're pretty excited about this. We have a number of students that are about to graduate that are excited about going out and trying this. Um, and we're going to do everything in our power to 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 make it possible for him. Shannon, talk to me about uh, the education aspect, because I, I know some people equate education with, well, that's, you know, getting the skills to go get a job and, you know, be a productive member of the workforce. The kind of education you're talking about, library education, uh, being steeped in the classics, explain how that helps a person in this modern day and age do better at whatever it is they're doing. Yeah, and, and probably the best way for me to do that is just tell the little story of Ed Shores. Um, t- some 15 years ago or so, Ed Shores started a program in New York City for, for inner city people. He wanted to see if an educational loan would take people who were you know, on welfare, doing drugs, that kind of thing, if that could change and have an impact on them. He found after a year of working with these folks, all they were doing is reading and writing and discussing. That was it. Um, 90% of the kids that went through that program that one year went off to college the next year. They, they were able to see that there was a much greater world. Um, and, and, you know, and, and you say, well, how could you do that? You're studying people from ancient Greece and Rome. Well, go try it because it works. And, um, and that's what happens here. So by, by taking this kind of educational approach and not, not focusing on income, not focusing on a job, but focusing on building yourself to be the best liberal artist you can be, 
it changes the world. It, it, it changes people's lives and you kind of have to experience it. If you want to come on down, spend a couple days with us and we'll show you how it works. Seeing is definitely believing. And, and it's a, it's a beautiful campus. It's a beautiful little corner of, of uh, Utah down near the four corners area. I want to throw one more loaded question at you though, Shannon. And again, this is for the sake of people who haven't really been exposed to this. And so we're probably thinking to themselves, okay, reading things that were written by people, you know, a couple thousand years ago, how could they possibly teach me anything that I couldn't learn better today? How do you answer a person who questions the value of those classics? Yeah, I go right to the Declaration of Independence, um, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. When the founders said pursuit of happiness, they meant eudaimonia. And when Aristotle said eudaimonia, um, he meant do the thing for which you were created. For, for, become the most that you can be. That is true living. That is true happiness. And of course, it got translated into life, liberty, and a pursuit of happiness. But the founders knew, they had read Aristotle in the original Greek. They knew that they were talking about eudaimonia, not, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. That's not what we're talking about. And this sense of eudaimonia really causes you to stop, analyze your life, and decide what are we you know, what am I engaged in? Is, is, it, is it money I'm chasing? Is it happiness I'm chasing? Is it, is it surface I'm chasing? And it really causes these kids to, to sit back and think about this. And this may be the first time that one, anyone's ever mentioned this to them. And it, it's very impactful. No, I, I can only look at the, the impact it's had on my own life. And yeah, there was a time when, you know, my, my life was spent trying to climb that career ladder. If I can get this title, if I can get this high of a pay range, you know, then I know that I've succeeded. And what happened was I was exposed to this this type of education, and instead I I learned impact is where I want to put my focus. And so everything that I do, you know, from from the time I get up till the time I go to bed is focused on how can I use whatever influence I have wisely. That doesn't mean I'm taking over the world, and it doesn't mean that I ever will, but wherever I am, the world hopefully is going to be a better place because I've learned how to use that influence to, to great effect for, for whomever yep. it's going to serve. And, and, and you can take that mentality, Brian, and you can provide for your family with that mentality. You actually can, and you can do it without going into debt. And that's the key points that, we, that people have to understand. Okay, MonticelloCollege.org. There is a link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Please check it out. Dr. Shannon Brooks, thank you so much. Great to catch up with you, my friend. All right, Brian. Thanks again. We'll we'll see you soon. This is the Brian Hyde Show.